From the Kennan Institute in Washington, D.C., welcome to Kennan X, a podcast on our never-ending quest to understand Russia, Ukraine, and the surrounding region. I'm your host, Jill Doherty. Some of the most striking images of the protests in Belarus are pictures of the ladies in white, Women dressed in white, carrying flowers, forming human chains to protect the protesters, many of whom are women, even hugging riot police. I wanted to understand these protests better, not just the political implications of this movement, as important as they are, but what is going on in Belarusian society. So I checked with Elena Gapova, founding director of the Center for Gender Studies at the European Humanities University in Minsk, Belarus, which is now the Belarusian University in Exile in Vilnius, Lithuania. By the way, hers was the first center for gender studies in the former Soviet Union. She's here in the United States, a professor of sociology at Western Michigan University. I am looking right now at a photograph of the three women who are really the opposition leaders in Belarus, Maria Kalesnikova, Svetlana Tikhanovska, and Veronika Sipkala. And it's extremely interesting to see that there actually are three women, not men. Why did this happen that we have such leadership by women? There were protests, there was opposition to Lukashenko, but it did not have too much support, honestly. But this time when elections were announced and people from a very different milieu decided to participate, this former banker, Viktor Babarika, this former director of the Park of High Technology or High Tech Park, Valery Zipkala, and Sergei Tikhanovsky, a protest blogger, and the way they looked, the way they talked, the things they were saying, the values that they embraced, all that clicked. And people responded to that. And somehow people rose to participate in that elections. And the government, of course, was not expecting that. It was expecting that it was going to be the way it was previously. So it arrested Viktor Babarika, the government, I mean, they arrested Sergei Tikhanovsky, and Valery Tsipkala had to leave the country, and he is now under criminal investigation. So the men left. And this is really an interesting situation. It, in a way, corresponds to what historian Shana Penn used to describe in her article and later in her book, I think the title is National Solidarity or Solidarity Secret. And the book is about the solidarity movement in Poland and women's participation in that movement. And she writes that in December 1981, when martial law was introduced in Poland, and several hundreds, if not thousands of active participants of the solidarity movement, all male were arrested during one night. So men were arrested and women remained because, well, arresting women, of course, is very bad publicity. No government would like to do that. So women remained and they were running solidarity for several months while men were in jail. So something similar happened in Belarus when all these leaders who were registering, all these candidates who were going to be candidates for presidency were either arrested or had to leave the country. Women rose. 
they united their headquarters together and they declared that Svetlana Tikhanovskaya was going to be a new candidate and all these three headquarters mm. were going to work in cooperation for this one candidate. And Svetlana Tikhanovskaya, who initially was not going to run for president at all, she said, and people all over the country, all over Belarus, to run for president, you need a certain number of signatures. And people were standing in lines all over Belarus to put their signatures for her. And when she was registered as a candidate, and you need more than 100,000 signatures, and this is a big number for a country like Belarus, which is 9.5 million people. So she declared initially, addressing her husband, who was and is in jail. She said, Sereja, I'm doing this for you. I love you very much. I'm doing this for you and for the people who believe in you. And then she declared that she was going to be a technical candidate. She said, well, I don't know how to run a country. I don't know how to be a president. So I consider myself a technical president. And my objective, my goal is to win these elections and to announce new fair elections, real elections for the real president of Belarus to be elected freely and openly and fairly. That's very interesting. I'm wondering, how does having women as the leaders of this movement change the dynamics of the protest? Well, this is really an interesting phenomenon. First of all, of course, having a woman and even three women as leaders, this is something really unusual. This is something remarkable. And here's this question of whether a woman can be elected a president, etc., and before that happened, sometimes during sociological surveys and polls and all kinds of exploration into that area, when people would be asked, well, would you vote for a woman? Can a woman be a president? Well, 30% would say yes, 60% would say no, etc. But suddenly, this question went away. It became clear that a woman can be elected the president and the polity stands for her. The question whether women can run the country, etc., it just disappeared. I think it is with these lines of solidarity started by women in white with flowers in their hands that people really began rising, not just thousands of people, but tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people were in the streets on those days. And that's how the protest really was shaped into something it is now. Somehow it became clear what we all need to do. We all need to rise and express mm -hmm. our solidarity and express our disobedience and communicate this disobedience to the government. At the same time, we don't want to be violent because it is clear that if violence unravels, there's no chance. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's going to change Belarusian society? Well, it seems that Belarusian society has already been changed largely, but I would be quite hesitant to predict as to what's going to happen next. I think women have been recognized as equal citizens, as equal players during this, of course, very special context. It's difficult to say how the whole situation is going to unravel. It can really go both ways at this point. But it seems to me that society has already been changed. And that is one dilemma of this stalemate. 
Belarusian society is changing. But the standoff between President Alexander Lukashenko and those who oppose him, so far at least, is locked in place. Lukashenko insisting he was legally re-elected, a post he's held for 26 years, and the opposition insisting the vote was falsified. This is a tectonic shift in the making. This is a history in the making from a capital H letter. Maximus Milta of the European Humanities University, now based in Vilnius, Lithuania, has another view of how Belarusian society is changing. For a number of years, for decades, it has been perceived primarily in Belarus that this is a somewhat of a lethargic dream that Belarus is in a lethargy, that Belarusians are basically satisfied with the so-called social contract that Lukashenko has established with them, and therefore they are not eager to protest. What we are witnessing starting from August 9th is completely different Belarus. It's not just the Belarus which is awakened, but this is a resilient Belarusian nation that is marching and root freedom and root dignity, and they will definitely succeed. There was this feeling that it was the last Soviet-style former republic. Nothing would change. Lukashenko had been in power now, I think, since 1994. So what was going on beneath the surface? What were we not seeing? First, we talk about the economic perspective of Belarus. On one end, you've got a country where no reforms were conducted in the field of demonopolization of industry. Basically, Belarus has been the country where no systematic approach to making economy more sustainable, where structural reforms would serve as catalysators of privatization of foreign direct investments coming to the country. However, at the same time, in the course of the last 10 years, what has grown tremendously is the IT sector of Belarus. Belarus is world-renowned not only for several very vocal apps that were developed in Belarus, but practically speaking, in Minsk alone, you have over 100,000 people who are related in one way or another to the IT sector, who are not necessarily only developers of IT products, but also people who are working in related industries. And this has driven an emergence of middle class in Belarus. Now, the middle class is something that can be debatable here, but nevertheless, we see that there is a new generation of people We can call them young people, although the definition of young would be very broad here because we talk about demographics from 20 to 50-ish, people who are working in IT sector who during the course of last 10 years have demonstrated that they are not only capable of presenting a sustainable niche of the economy, a sustainable sector of the economy, but also that their demands, they are not limited exclusively by the lifestyle that they have. So therefore, we have also witnessed a very dramatic change in the environment of Minsk and other major cities of Belarus. But there was one more thing, Maximus Miltus says, that sparked these protests. As COVID-19 hit Belarus, President Lukashenko did almost nothing, insisting that people should drink vodka and take saunas to keep healthy. The ignorance that Lukashenko has demonstrated, not only to the spread of pandemic itself, but also to the deaths of people, those hundreds and thousands of people who passed away because of government's ignorance, People have realized that this authority, that this regime that has been undemocratic, remaining in power for 26 years, it does not represent their interests even in saving people's lives. 
Because in the neighboring Russia, for instance, the autocratic Vladimir Putin has installed the lockdown. And Belarusians have witnessed that in Moscow, in St. Petersburg, in other cities of Russia. Although, again, the spread of COVID-19 has been tremendous in Russia. But at least they have seen that it was a very different picture. The same concerns for Ukraine, the same concerns for other countries, where Belarusians maintain very deep and day-to-day, people-to-people contacts. And therefore, COVID-19 has been a trigger for a further emergence of mobilization of people. And therefore, based on the success of people's mobilization in reaction to COVID, people have seen that the presidential elections of 2020 is the time for change. We know that even in Arkhangelsk, the city which is thousands of kilometers away from Belarus, where the protests have been ongoing even for longer than in Belarus, people are well aware about what's going on in Belarus. And often when you are participating in one or another rally in Minsk, you would hear also people shout in Arkhangelsk, we are with you. Therefore, people in Russia, by virtue of access to YouTube, where the whole number of most renowned Russian vloggers, they are reporting developments in Belarus almost on a daily basis. And this comes also for the independent media of Russia that are also providing very extensive coverage of developments in Belarus. This provides access to Russian civil society to see and to witness what is the current state of affairs in Belarus. But in contrast to neighboring Ukraine, where the spark of revolution began as citizens made a choice between East and West, between Europe and Russia, Belarusians are focused on their own society, on their own political system, on the democracy they want to build at home. And yet many of the protest leaders have had to flee Belarus, finding shelter in Lithuania and Poland. These are the two closest countries to Belarus that are sharing over 1,000 kilometers of joint border with Belarus. And therefore, we see that the first step, the first wave was providing shelter, accommodation, providing direct assistance whenever members of the Presidium of Coordination Council, whether Svetlana Tikhanovskaya herself or other prominent activists were confronted with direct threat. Now we see a completely different wave. We see a wave of international recognition that has been accumulating step by step. This was a very strong resolution of the European Parliament has has been adopted when more than 500 members of the European Parliament, the overwhelming majority, has adopted a resolution in regards to first recognizing the role of Svetlana Tikhanovskaya and Coordination Council and also claiming and declaring in a very straightforward manner that Alexander Lukashenko is no more legitimate president of Belarus and therefore he is not recognized by the European Parliament as such. It is important for the West to demonstrate that This is for Belarusian people themselves to decide on their further geopolitical future. This is for Belarusians themselves to decide which path would they like to undertake. But at the same time, the West stands not only in solidarity and statements with Belarus, but is also capable of providing very tangible, very clear means of supporting Belarusian society and Belarusian economy for its further transition. If you ask any Belarusian whether he or she would prefer to move west or to move east when it comes to geopolitical orientation of Belarus, you would probably get an answer that the best vision for Belarus is to become somewhat of a Switzerland of Central and Eastern Europe. And I believe this is a vision of Belarus that currently Belarusians are sharing. So therefore, there is no geopolitical demand, yet Belarus is an inseparable part of the European civilization. And therefore, Europe and the West, in a broader sense, should support Belarusians in their strive for freedom. 
Maximus, I want to ask you one last question. And it's obviously the question of what happens really with Lukashenko, because I would presume that the opposition and many people in Belarus would simply want him to step down, perhaps to have new elections, start with a new president, or maybe recognize Tsikhanouska, but in any case, a peaceful transfer. But the image that I have from a number of years ago with Ceausescu in Romania and other places where there has been violence, it would be a terrible outcome. But how will this resolve itself? This is a very good and very complicated question because the notion of the exit strategy for Lukashenko has been something discussed in circles of political scientists working with Belarus for quite a while, for over a decade by far, and yet there has been no precise path There is no simple possibility to return to the status quo that has existed before August 9th. So therefore, I don't think this is a question of geography, where Lukashenko will find himself, whether he would find himself in runaway to Russia or elsewhere, or would it be other parts of the world? This is not something, in fact, what Belarusians, according to my knowledge, are interested in discussing and analyzing. We have political prisoners, and yet people remain peaceful when they go out in the rallies. And therefore, the stamina that Belarusian nation has demonstrated, it is, in my opinion, highly unlikely to evaporate. Inevitably, weather conditions may affect, but people will be still going out. And I imagine that under international pressure, and especially on the moment when Kremlin recognizes and accepts the fact that Lukashenko is no more in charge, is no more in control of the situation in Belarus, this will be the moment when the regime change happens. Now, we should be alerted very much on the period that is forthcoming, on the transition period, because knowing the means and techniques of Kremlin and the ways how Kremlin behaves itself in the region, it is highly likely that Russia would meddle into the transition period in Belarus. And therefore, the discussions on whether Kremlin would use troops, in their opinion, in order to stabilize the situation in Belarus, in my account, is very highly unlikely. Belarus, at least in terms of its area, is six times larger than Crimea. Belarus has four times more population than Crimea, so therefore it wouldn't be that easy as the occupation of Crimea to occupy Belarus. Instead, I would estimate that Kremlin would do its utmost efforts at meddling at the transition period, and this is the one that we should be very alerted about. However, at this point of time, what is essential for Belarusian nation is to get rid of this personalistic and bloody regime of Alexander Lukashenko. And basically, there is no choice for Lukashenko as to remain in Belarus. This is just the question of time, how much time is left for him, In my understanding, we talk months. We are not talking years or decades. We talk only months. That, at least, is the hope of Maximus Milta. However it ends, the fate of Belarus will affect Eastern Europe, Russia, Western Europe, and potentially U.S. relations with Russia. But what is happening with Belarusians, what is changing in their society, will be the lasting legacy of this moment. Here's how Elena Gapova explains it. 
it seems to be so much more about citizenship. And by definition, the concept of citizenship is about political and legal relationship between the people, the members of the polity and the state. This is so much, and citizenship, it presupposes autonomy. It presupposes recognition on the part of the state. So this is very much a revolution about this liberal democratic relationship between the state and the citizens. Citizens want rights and citizens want recognition. So this is really very much this very moral thing. This is very much about rights. Kenan X is a product of the Kenan Institute at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington, D.C. It's the Wilson Center's oldest program, founded in 1974 by George F. Kennan, American statesman, James Billington, historian and former Librarian of Congress, and historian S. Frederick Starr. Inspired by them, the Kennan Institute's mission is to improve America's understanding of Russia and the wider region. Thanks for listening.